Apologies to both sides. Yeah. You, you, you really didn't deserve this. <laughs> the flick lab treatment. <laughs> the flick lab treatment. to the Flick Club. I'm Karri. I studied media and have been working in the TV industry, so <laughs> that's my credentials regarding this show where we go to check out one film from any country every week. In this case, it's going to be a Bosnian flick. We have our guest here, Daniel. So my name's Daniel. So I was born in Bosnia in the winter of 1993, and I guess I would have spent the first eight months of my life there before my parents fled to Croatia first, again for another year or so, before we eventually came to Canada as refugees. That's where I've been living ever since. Mm -hmm. First in Windsor, which is across the border from Detroit. So I grew up with a lot of American television and movies and all of that, uh, even more so than I think the average Canadian. And then now I've been in Toronto for the last five years. I'm doing my PhD now in biochemistry there, but otherwise doing a lot of writing, doing a lot of, I would say, activism work, etc. And I'm excited to be on the podcast. I really appreciate the opportunity to chat about No Man's Land, which has been one of my favorite movies since high school, actually. And it's a bit unfortunate. I have not seen a lot of Bosnian movies. I've actually consumed more Bosnian television than movies, but this one stands out especially considering that is one of the, actually it's the only Bosnian movie to ever win a, an Oscar. It won the Oscar for Best Foreign Language Movie right. back in 2001. So I think for any of the viewers who decide to watch this movie, it's really a treat. All right. And so we also have my co-host Henrik here. How are you, Henrik? Oh, goddamn busy as always. <laughs> to be absolutely honest, the, the last few weeks have, has been an absolute nightmare. At, at this point, I uh, most mo- most likely I would be more happily stuck in some goddamn trench sitting on a mine than, than doing <laughs> what I'm currently doing. So, how does it sound to Canadian ear? This Finnish level of honesty. How are you doing? Like shit. <laughs> I'm doing fine because that's what Canadians say to every question you ask. I'm doing <laughs> fine. That's just <laughs> I've never quite heard that. <laughs> And seeing how well today's episode is thematically, it's it's coming from the from the shadow of of the pretty village, pretty flame episode. I I think it's it's more yeah. than fair from us to actually try to have an honest to god guest also for this episode, and also tackle a Bosnian film about the exact same mm-hmm. situation. Like I stated, if you want to know that our overview, as we understand it, of the Bosnian war goes to listen to the pre-village episode. Yeah, we, we mm-hmm. tackled the conflict up to an... Well, well to, to a point of of <laughs> being almost nauseating. As some listeners have pointed out, <laughs> there, there's still that one Reddit comment that why did we cover the war in, in such of a detail since all wars essentially are the same? 
they just bring the rest out of humanity. That was some kind of a weird comment, though. <laughs> that that was yeah. that was something that that happened. Yeah, Reddit is is a unique place to share your <laughs> your creative endeavors. I do that with my blog sometimes, and oh my god, some of the comments I get. Yeah. I've had people claim that I'm the far right trying to claim Bob Dylan as their own because I was critical of some of his song lyrics. I've had people just write this is utter shit, that's all they write. Yeah. No no critical thought, just this sucks. <laughs> it's funny. I once wrote that we did the Spectre episode I posted in the James Bond Reddit and I said something aching. This is a very thorough explanation of Spectre and why it failed for mm-hmm. three hours. And then somebody commented that, well, it doesn't take three hours to go through that. Actually, I should have commented to that, that no, it actually took like five hours, but we edited it down <laughs> to three hours. <laughs> this is the kind of film podcast where we usually get a little bit more deep analytical. We tend to, if we, for example, see a gun in a film, we might estimate what kind of a velocity it would have or any different kind of things that are related to guns to see if the actual thing that happened in the film with the gun would actually happen in real life or interesting <laughs> yeah interesting i can't say i've ever thought about films in that way <laughs> i guess i got a little bit out of the whole film world for about 10 years i wasn't looking into it too deeply and then something happened that i really want to do a film podcast all of a sudden and Wow. But during those years, I had started to read about a basic understanding about the scientific method and how do you do studies and how do you draw the conclusions based on a collection of studies. And Anyway, just uh, got interested in that. And then I thought we could kind of include that into how we look at the movies from a factual standpoint. But Sure, sounds, sounds good to me. Yeah. So as listeners might know, we can be found on Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, Instagram, and you can hear this podcast also on pretty much any podcast player. So you don't have to listen to this from our website or something. I'm sure there are more efficient ways to, that you can find to tune in. So why did we select this film now for this podcast? That's an interesting question, actually. It's more like we did the Pretty Village, Pretty Flame episode over a year ago. And even back then, we thought that, okay, we need to balance this out. Because that was a Serbian-made uh, film about the horrors of Bosnian war. And, uh, and we thought it would be just fair to have like a Bosnian episode to balance it out. And here we have No Man's Land, which I think is the kind of the Bosnian counterpart, if you will, of Pretty Village, Pretty Flame, although albeit they are quite different films. If our listeners are interested in finding out about the whole war, how it started, what are the reasons, what are the different different factions in it, I heavily suggest that you go listen to the Pretty Village, Pretty Flame episode, because uh, I don't think we're going to go through all of that in detail anymore. I don't think it's necessary to go through that. The movie doesn't address why the war started the the context behind the war it even though it's a movie about the bosnian war it's you can draw general conclusions about all wars from this movie i believe yeah i would say so i think in pretty village you had more of uh inside terminology Mm -hmm. when we had the guest mladen in that show he Mm -hmm. really helped us out to understand different 
parts of the film. And always the subtitles are not up to par or you can translate something perfectly. So we spent a lot of time yeah. on things like that. Yeah, absolutely. I, and I feel like for this film, you actually didn't need someone from Bosnia to really delve into it too deeply, actually. True. Aside from introducing the two main characters, one as a Serbian, one as a Bosnian, there's really no other deeper narrative there. You actually, if you watch this movie and you knew nothing about the war, you'd probably actually leave thinking that it's you know very confusing as to how the war started, because that's how the main characters argue with each other. They keep bickering back and forth. Who started the war? Who started the war? You're at fault. You're at fault. You're worse than us. You're worse at us. And that's really one of the main narratives throughout the film. So I almost find going into it with some ignorance to watch the movie at first allows you to appreciate the narrative of what the average soldier goes through more so than being burdened with the context of what's going on behind the scenes. I think that this is also the reason for the big success of the film internationally. Yeah. What's your history with the film? Have you seen it a lot of times and what were the yeah. circumstances when you saw it? Yeah, it's a bit funny. So I watched it first in, I think, grade 11 for English class. I chose to watch that movie for a project we had to do. Mm -hmm. And that was a time, I think, in my life where I was starting to connect a little bit more with the Bosnian heritage. As I mentioned, I came to Canada when I was very young. So even in terms of the language, I speak pretty poor Bosnian. It's like a second, third grade level. I can understand, I can participate in conversation, but I can't express myself fully in the language. And growing up in, in Canada, Aside from my immediate family, I wasn't surrounded by Bosnian people, not really. I think in high school, there was some yearning to connect with that a little bit more. So I started choosing to explore the media. That's why I chose it first for that media analysis in English class. And then it's a funny anecdote, but in, in high school, I really did do a bit of filmmaking in some of those classes. I quite enjoyed it. I thought of myself as a bit of a film critic. So I made a list of top 100 movies from my personal opinion. And at this time in my life, I probably haven't even seen that many more films than 100. So it was a really bad list. But No Man's Land, I put number one because I thought it was a good film, sure. But also it lended my whole list some credibility because I picked a foreign language movie, international movie as the number one spot. Like that's what you might see in a serious list of best movies of all time. But some of my selections were just so... I put Snow Dogs in there. I put so many Adam Sandler movies in the top 100. It was embarrassing. <laughs> oh, wow. <laughs> well, you know, we need entertainment every once in a while. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And then I watched No Man's Land for the second time before I went to visit Bosnia in October, just this past October. I was watching it to practice Bosnian a bit. And then I watched it again now to be on the podcast. So I've seen it three times. Yeah. So you went to Sarajevo. What's the mood around there? Did you go to the Serb oh, Serbian yeah. side? I mean, I we went around the entire part of Sarajevo. It was my first time in Sarajevo. So I was born in Tuzla, mm -hmm. which is actually, you'll hear in the movie, that's near where the movie takes place. Not that that's a, an important part of the plot at all. I think it's very important that they just chose a normal field with no identifying features. The point was, it could be happening to any two soldiers. There's nothing unique about them. But it was near Tuzla, which is where I was born. That's kind of... Uh, more in the northern part of Bosnia. So most of the times when I would visit Bosnia as a kid, I would be either in Tuzla, which is my dad's side of the family, or in Shamats, which is this small town right near the border with Croatia at the north of Bosnia. That's where my mom's family is from. But this last time I 
went to Bosnia with my mother, and we did actually travel around the entire country for the first time in my life. We went to Sarajevo for three nights, and we did a tour of the Herzegovina region of Bosnia. That's the southern part. That's more Mediterranean. And that was very beautiful. But Sarajevo, what was the mood like? Well, it's it's very openly in mourning still. I, you don't see that in North America. I'm not sure what it's like in other Eastern European countries, but you have cemeteries everywhere. You have graves everywhere. You can be in a public park and you'll have tombstones there because during the siege of Sarajevo, you couldn't have a normal burial service. So you just buried people in proximity to where they died, to where you lived. So there are just gravestones everywhere. You can't escape that. And just like the rest of Bosnia, you have public uh, notices of death everywhere. You have just these public posting boards where when someone dies, you post more or less like a eulogy or information about the service or whatever. And those are scattered throughout the whole city. And they're color-coded based on the religion of the individual. Oh, wow. So you just see that everywhere. And then in Sarajevo, more than even the other cities I've been to, you see the damage from the war. You see shots from snipers, like the bullet holes left in buildings, all the damage from from falling shells, so the the debris that comes up with that. And in Sarajevo, one thing they did to, not to commemorate, but to remember certain very deadly shellings, is if a shell fell and it killed at least three people, they would fill the hole with like a red lacquer and it becomes a bit of a monument and they're called Sarajevo Roses. It's a bit funny at times, but if you get like a tourist map of Sarajevo, it'll actually highlight on the map all the places you can go to see these Sarajevo Roses, which is a bit morbid if you think about it. It's like a little tour book of all the places where a bunch of people were killed 25 years ago. The biggest one was it hit a market and it killed about 50, 60 people. And in the aftermath of that shelling, you actually see the same narrative that you see in the movie, which is where the Yugoslavian army, so what we would call the Serbians in in the context of the war, they claimed that it was the Bosnians who bombed themselves to get sympathy, to, you know, force the international community to to act. Mm. And meanwhile, the Bosnians are like, no, we have you have proof, you know, that the shell came from the mountains where your army was. But that kind of back and forth arguing about all this stuff is, well, you see it in all wars, I imagine. The stakes are very high. You need to control the narrative. But you saw that in the Bosnian War as well. So, yeah, long story short, Sarajevo is a bit bleak, but it's a beautiful, beautiful city. And like the rest of Bosnia, at least compared to what life is like in Canada, where I'm now, it, it moves slower. You have coffee shops everywhere, and they're always filled with people, no matter what time of day it is. Just sitting, drinking coffee, smoking, whatever. So I appreciate that. Have you been to the Srebrenica massacre site? I have not, actually. I don't know. When I go with my parents, they're not as keen to go see it. I think <laughs> we're there to visit family. Yeah, right. They've they live through a lot of this. I don't think they yeah. uh, feel compelled. Although if I if I told them I want to go, I think they would take me. But what we did in Sarajevo, actually, it was a very it was an amazing experience in Toronto, actually. I was dating someone at the time who was in museum studies, and they told me that someone was coming from Bosnia to speak about a new museum they have there. So I went to this talk, and it was the world's first war child museum or children of war museum. And it's not about children soldiers or anything like that, but it's a museum that's dedicated to the experiences of children growing up during the war. So I heard this guy talk about what inspired him to create this museum and how he connected with all these people who were kind of ignored in the narrative of the Bosnian War. Because you have tons of kids, especially if you're in a place like Sarajevo that was under siege for over three years, 
you have people who maybe live from the age of 10 to 13 in a basement. Right. And they didn't go to school. They, they had classes in the hallway of their apartment. And they probably knew quite a few of their classmates or friends who were killed or family members who were killed. And they remember waiting in line for, for water. It started as a way of crowdsourcing all of these stories. So we went to this museum and it always changes because he found so many people that are willing to send in their artifacts, for lack of a better word. So there's always about 50 displays at any given time, but it cycles regularly. And it includes a testimonial of the child and what that item means to them. And they're just everyday items in some cases. A lot of kids save their rations that they got. Uh, It was maybe the only chocolate bar they ate during the whole war. And so they saved the wrapper because the wrapper would always smell like chocolate. And now they gave that wrapper to the museum and that's on display along with their story. And then you have the one toy they may have had or something that reminded them or was owned by someone that they knew that was killed. There was a guitar there of a person and that was the only instrument that his friends had. They're all 16, 17. And so that was the guitar they would play when they hang out in the basement so they can feel like, you know, kids, teenagers, you know, Mm. music, music was important. And that anecdotes of people who would hook up generators to exercise bikes. So when all the teenagers would hang out, one of them would always need to be on the bike so they can power uh, the record player or the um, oh, God. the radio so they can listen to music. And that was a it was a very intense experience for me. So I, I was technically also a child of war, but I have no conscious memories of what it was like to be in Bosnia at the time. All I have are my parents' stories and my relatives' stories. So many stories. That's why I like going back to Bosnia now. I go back every two years. So I'm trying to write down all the stories of my extended family, especially my grandparents while they're still here. My grandmothers are both alive. Awesome. Like I, it's it's just like a ghost in my past, I guess. Yeah. For- because I, I lived through it, but I didn't live through it. And I it's part of my identity, but it isn't part of my identity. It's hard to reconcile. How old were you again when you left the country? Uh, 16 months. When I would have left Croatia, I would have left Bosnia after six months or so. Croatia at that point when we left Bosnia in 1994 was already, the war was over in Croatia. So that was comfortable. I mean, there was still economic uncertainty for my family, but there wasn't the same danger of being killed. Tuzla wasn't so bad during the war as compared to Sarajevo, or obviously some of the northern parts of Bosnia, like where there was ethnic cleansing. Right. Because in Tuzla, it's in the valley. You have the mountains around it, just like Sarajevo. But the Yugoslavian army was only surrounding on three-fourths of the city. So on the other side, there was a place where convoys can come in to bring supplies. So as a result, I mean, food was still scarce and supplies were scarce. But it wasn't as bad as Sarajevo. And the shelling and sniper fire wasn't as intense. But there were still quite a hundreds of people that were civilians killed in Tuzla during the war due to shelling. There's the Tuzla massacre, which was one shell that fell right in the heart of the city. And they killed about 50 to 60 people. There's a quite a few monuments in the city to that massacre. And all those people that died have a part in the, in the hillside with all their graves. It's amazing because the war went on for so long. Life kind of went on as normal. But people learned how to judge if a shell was going to fall close or far, depending on how it was sounding as it was falling. And they would always look out for, if I hear something coming, where's my safety point? Where can I run to to be safe? Mm. So despite the fact that shelling was pretty constant, you didn't have as many people dying because people eventually learned how to, to hide. 
So I think for my parents, what changed was when I was born. It's probably bad timing to have a child. Mm. But they were already in the, they were living there for a little while. And then I was born in December 1993. And the way the story goes is the first nice day of spring, my mom just took me out into the front of the apartment complex where they were living. So they were living with my grandmother all in the one apartment. She brought me outside, probably my first time outside in the world. And at that time, a shell did fall right into the front, like the front courtyard of the apartment. And my, so my dad heard this from up in the apartment and he ran down and all he sees is smoke. And he says in that moment, he was convinced that both my, I, I and my mom were killed. But then out of the smoke, uh, one of the neighborhood kids comes, finds him. And he says, no, we're okay. We took shelter in uh, some convenience store down there, or maybe down the steps that lead to a basement. And so we were okay, but that's when they decided that they would try and get out. They were debating whether or not to hunker down for the war. And I think a lot of people were faced with that decision because no one thought that the war would start in the first place. You hear that mm. from all the, all the people. They, they couldn't imagine it happening here. And if it does happen, it would end quickly. Bosnia declared independence. The army left the city. They marched out. And then they went to the mountains, surrounded the city. And then the next day, they started shelling the city that they were based in the day before. They set up barricades, leaving the city. And just like that, the city was under siege very, very quickly by an army that was based in that city a little bit earlier. So they talk about this in the movie. There's a like a newsreel halfway through. That's kind of their exposition scene to catch people up. But notably, that scene happens pretty late into the movie. And it's kind of meant to maybe talk a little bit more about the media rather than garnering sympathy with either of the main characters. But it talks about how on the Bosnian side, it was mostly the police force in Bosnia and then civilians who joined, who were fighting back against the Yugoslavian army, which was considerably stronger. Did you talk with the locals when you were were visiting Sarajevo, for example? How were their feelings about the current situation? That, Of course, I've heard that nobody is basically satisfied with the current situation, how how they are keeping the borders yeah. at the moment. But... Uh, Do you see that this situation could stay for a longer period of time? Do, do you see that this could be indefinite or do you need yeah. think that this is going to get into a new war eventually at some point? So, yeah, that's a good question. And I am not a political scientist. Yeah. And despite the fact that that's where I see my roots, I don't, I read about it, but there's something inside me that's keeping me from delving so deep into that part of it. Yeah, I don't know. Uh, but based on some of the, at least from my family's perspective, extended family's perspective, my dad is concerned about it. You still see some nationalist rhetoric. So Bosnia now, for the viewers who might be confused as to, because if you look at the people in this movie, they look the same, they speak the same language. All of this seems a bit silly. Not to say that any war is justified or not silly if you really think about it, but What, what was happening? So in Bosnia, now you do have three ethnic groups. You have the Bosniaks, which are the Bosnian Muslims. You have the Bosnian Serbs, which are Orthodox. And you have the Bosnian Croatians, which are Catholic. Yeah. So my dad's side is Catholic. They're from Croatia, I guess, throughout history. But they've been living in Bosnia for some time. And on my mom's side, they're Bosniak. They're, they're Muslim. And then now Bosnia is divided up into two parts. You have a Serbian part. Yeah. Well, there's three parts, really. There's also an independent part near the top. Not independent, but it's not Serbian or, or Muslim. It's 
it's just this kind of like independent entity within Bosnia. Right. And the two geographical halves are pretty split evenly. You have the Serbian half. So my mom's side, which is Muslim, they actually live in the Serbian part of Bosnia, right on the border with Croatia. So if you go to that town of Shamat, this actually explains the geopolitical situation pretty well. There's two rivers that, I guess, demarcate the boundary of the city. If you cross the river to one side, you're in the Croatian part of Bosnia, actually. And if you cross the river on the other side, you're in Croatia. And on their side, it's the Serbian part of Bosnia, but they're Muslim. And there's quite a few Muslims in the city, in the town as well. And that was one town that the Yugoslavian army did, uh, I guess, seize early on in the war. So my mom's family, they were forced out of their home. And it took them about eight years to get their home back. It was a very long process after the war with figuring out who is owed what right. and whose property is whose property. By the time they got their home back, obviously all the possessions were gone. It was a home that my grandfather had built himself, put a lot of work into it. And then all like the whole basement was just blown out. So, well, the first floor rather, there's no real basements. Oh. It was first floor that's used as a basement and a second floor where people live. And my uncle was put to digging trenches for the Yugoslavian army. He suffers from quite a bit of PTSD from that. But my mom at that time was already in Tuzla. She was in medical school at the time. That's where she met my dad. So she didn't get to talk to her her mother and her father until she was already in Canada. They had no contact because she didn't know where my grandmother and my grandfather had to leave to, where they had to flee to. So at that point, she was already in Canada. She had a kid that they didn't know about. And she was married now to a person they had never met. Wow. So, yeah. So, okay. That's a long-winded background into the, so is there fear now? Yes, there's still some fear now. Uh, there was rumors or rumblings of another um, ballot on whether or not the Bosnian part of Serbia should leave Bosnia. And I don't know if it would have been that they would have then joined Serbia or they would have just been their own independent country. That never ended up happening, but you do have some politicians that are really stoking fear and anger there. But the government's very clumsy and clunky. You have representative of the Serbian part. You have a representative of the Bosnian part. You have representative of the Croatians, so the Catholics. And I don't know if there's many governments in the world where you have representatives based on the religious makeup of the country. Right. And then they actually rotate power with an elected period. And unless they all agree, you don't get anything done. So things are really stuck in this really in this compromise that isn't really working for anybody, but. It, there's not the same violence there used to be, I guess. Yeah, it kind of puts things into perspective again for Europe. It's unbelievable that something that like this could yeah. have happened. And it's even maybe more unbelievable that we haven't had more exposure for, for this war. I think it should be Absolutely. one of the main topics in history classes already. And I remember Absolutely. nothing about it in primary school. Of course, it was I was in primary school only shortly kind of after the events and yeah. during the events. but. Yeah, but if you watch this movie, you can see kind of how useless and bureaucratic these international bodies were at doing anything of importance during the conflict. There's a great line early in the movie where they're just installing that mine, and the the Serbian soldier is talking about like made in the EU. Maybe it, it was a line I overlooked when I used to watch it, but now it, it's like really obvious, almost unsubtle. But this idea, like. The EU can be there to like try and be a peacekeeping, but you have all these companies making weapons of destruction in the EU profiting off of this war. It reminded me of this big news story that came out of Yemen a few years ago 
where a school bus filled with children was blown up by a missile. Yeah. And then the reporting afterwards found that this was a missile made in America by an American weapons manufacturer. Uh, same thing in Canada. Yeah, in Canada, we sell a lot of weapons to uh, the Saudi Arabian government, despite the war that they're having in Yemen and all those abuses and all the civilians dying. So yeah, NATO, UN, all and all these free trade agreements, they're there for the benefit of the governments and the people that they're really beholden to, mostly corporations who have a lot of business interests. NATO's role also there was to uh, kind of be uh, doing their typical anti-communist rampage. Yeah, like anytime America would lend money, it would come with requirements that fewer companies be owned by the public to open up the markets to a foreign investment. Slowly but surely, the socialist program was broken down through this uh, exploitation or taking advantage of the situation there. Even though Yugoslavia was never closely allied with the Soviet Union, I mean, if anything, yeah. they were the stereotypical third world. They were neither American, they were neither Soviet. They were independent in that Cold War, but they were still socialist to some extent. And that would not, that would not do. Listening to you and uh, having listened to the Bosnian Serb in our Pretty Village episode, I think you agree on a lot of things here. Yeah, I, I think our generation, so me and that guest you had, yeah. I, I, we maybe have less of the baggage. I know growing up, I used to make a lot of jokes in grade school. Like kids would make jokes about like, oh, his dad killed your dad, those types of things. Hmm. And so that was like the first baggage. But eventually, I mean, I don't think I have much of that anymore. My parents at least were never very intense with that in terms of like blindly hating Serbians or anything like that. Yeah. But I, I don't have any of that back. Like, I get, there's a common statement, you know, the the Bosnian worker and the Serbian worker have more in common with each other than they do with either of their governments. In the end, the divisions between us have been sowed. They've been manufactured. It's a classic divide and conquer strategy. Yeah. So it's important to try and challenge that rhetoric. It's, it sounded like me that the war would have never happened had you not had the propaganda that you had. I mean, yeah, you, it's hard to have a war without propaganda because look what you're asking people to do. You're asking some poor person who has nothing to his name, maybe, to go enlist, train, leave their family behind and risk their life to kill someone else who's in the same situation as they are. Right. Now, of course, you have defense. Yeah, you definitely have people there that were defending, but you can't have people on both sides agreeing to fight constantly without convincing them that the enemy is somehow evil that they they they're against what we stand for yeah how do you feel about or how did you feel about the safety level in bosnia when you were traveling did you get any feelings that there would be some pers personal issues on the streets or? yeah so i mentioned that my mom's town is in the serbian part of bosnia so most people there are orthodox they're serbian yeah. and i personally have never felt unsafe there People are very friendly, but my parents have always told me to err on the side of caution. So if I'm ever going through the town by myself and they say, if anybody asks, where are you from? What's your background? Just tell them you're Canadian. Don't tell them about uh, your family background in terms of you have a mom that's Muslim or they related to this person. Yeah. If you feel like it, we could start to give a little bit of an overview on the film. Sure. So this is... Uh co-production between companies from Bosnia and Herzegovina, Slovenia, France, Italy, Belgium, and the UK. 
won the Oscar for the foreign language film in 2002. Budget around 2 million and box offices still tend to be modest for these international hits. This was, I believe, 4.8 million in the box office internationally. Uh, the director is uh, Danis Danovic. Of course, me being Finn, I, well, I don't know if that's an excuse, but I also, uh, this might be my first Bosnian film that I have ever seen. So, but anyway, this director is Bosnian. And apart from tonight's film, he is also known for award-winning films such as Death in Sarajevo and an episode in the life uh, of an iron picker. And he holds a joint Bosnian and Belgian citizenship and lives in Sarajevo currently, but used to live in France for many years. Yeah, yeah, people from Bosnia all around the world. It's it's kind of amazing when you see, and especially for sports, you can just see all the different national teams they play for. Like someone like Zlatan Ibrahimovic playing for the Swedish team. Do you know anything about these actors in the film? Because my knowledge is pretty much IMDb and what I have been able to collect in, in some <laughs> certain articles. But I have nothing provided about them except that they did a, a great job, yeah. really, actually. So, yeah, I've not seen him in anything else. As I mentioned, my consumption of Bosnian media has been mostly television, also shitty Bosnian reality TV when I go visit, because <laughs> that's what my grandparents sometimes watch. <laughs> so in terms of, like, Bosnian movies, again, you have the excuse of being Finnish. I don't know what my excuse is. <laughs> there is this character called Chiki, the Bosnian character played by Branko Duric, also known by his nickname Duro. I'm not sure how to ex exactly pronounce even this D with this, uh, this line going through it. That'd be like Juro. Ah, it's like, a, yeah, Juro, something yeah, like that. Yeah, that's good. Actor, comedian, film director, and musician. Born in Sarajevo, lives in Slovenia. And supporting roles that he has had have been quite international successes, these films. The Smell of Quinces, Time of the Gypsies, In the Land of... Blood and Honey, which is his second film about the Bosnian war, apart from tonight's mm. film. See You in Montevideo, all kind of known titles. He has been, like many of the fil film's actors, have been a part of this uh, satirical comedy series, uh, Nasha Mala Clinica, Our Small Clinic, or something like this, which uh, has spawned a franchise in Slovenian, Croatian, and Serbian versions. <laughs> Then we have Nino, the Bosnian Serb, played by Rene Pitorajac, a Croatian actor. He also was in Nasamala Clinica and uh, in 2009 won the Golden Arena for Best Actor. And uh, yeah, then we have Tsera, the Bosniak with the landmine under him, played by Filip Šovagovic, more or less that. Croatian actor, director, comedian, journalist, playwright. There's a lot of uh, Bosnian film titles that I cannot tell you anything about, but <laughs> basically a known actor <laughs> around those parts. And it's the official Croatian language voice for Garfield. Oh, wow. Last but not least on my list, there is uh, Jane Livingstone, the journalist played by Catherine Cartledge. Yeah, she was an English, English actress, unfortunately died at the age of 41 due oh, wow. to complications from cancer. Kind of interestingly, she was due to play a lead role in a Polish director, Lech Majewski's 2004 film, The Garden of 
Earthly Delights, in which she was supposed to play a character who has cancer. Oh, yeah, that's dark. Indeed. Scene by scene. This is this uh, nightly scene that we start off with. And uh, in the credit sequence, though, we have some kind of a music. But it's the same song they have at the end, right? So there is one line I wrote down that was that was quite poignant. Um, it goes, sleep my son. The sun is setting, sleep my son. No. Oh. It's just sleep oh. my son. Just go to bed, oh. my son. <laughs> I I can't tell what was the lyric and what were my notes about what was happening. So that's a bit of an issue. I'm going to have to decipher my own writing. But what I really liked about the song was the just the rhythm of it. Like It's the marching of people, right? It's a marching of yep. a company into battle. And I think that really sets the stage for the whole movie because it's just a bunch of no-name soldiers who are fighting each other. It's the same people on both sides. It's just people following orders. So I think it sets a nice little scene or a nice little ambiance. Yeah, I can't really say that it was a good or a bad thing whether or not the son got to bed or, or not. So Exactly. Yeah. yeah, once you look at the end, it adds a bit of an irony. Go to sleep, my son. Yeah. So Bosniaks are trying here to navigate in the darkness near the enemy lines. They don't really know yet that they're that close as they are. And we got to the morning where they just stare. I love this this reaction shots of the guys. That mm-hmm. They're looking at the enemy flag and, oh, really? What? What's happening here? And then the bombardment starts with the tanks and uh, troops. It's really yeah. hard to start for the yeah. film. Like, like you, you, you have this, the somber, quiet nighttime moment. Then there's the hard cut into the morning and immediately you're in the middle of a gunfight. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the Serbians uh, start to investigate what was happening. And, uh, they alert the HQ and send people to investigate. Uh, these people are Nino and Zera. Nino and some other person whose name we never get. Zera is the person that's eventually on the mine. Right. That's yeah. the thing. Nino keeps trying to introduce himself to everybody and no one ever shakes his hand. Yeah, that's an uh, interesting point. Nobody seems to be very willing to you know I, I think he's just trying to be really kind yeah because he was there only for seven days or something like that he had just gone to the front line first time ever and he still has a bit of humanity he hasn't been hardened by war yet now chicky realizes that his friend is dead but that doesn't really stop him from taking a cigarette out of his pocket and mm-hmm. risking his life for that one <laughs> and the serbians uh, start crawling towards the trench Chiki investigates his wound, seems to be pretty bad. Chiki positions himself to this shack, and luckily that's next to him when he starts to hear some noises as the enemy approaches. Yeah, he has only the enemy's gun that he's using. Mm-hmm. Yeah, as they pass. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And the old, older man sets the mine under Zera. They question where the gun is now, and surprise, Chiki has it. Yeah, surprise. Nino is not much of help with anything when he's taken as a hostage, doesn't know about the mines, doesn't have a mine map, doesn't know really anything of use. And seems that the old guy has been an avid consumer of gay pornography. I don't know if this is also some kind of a <laughs> trying to be some sort of a jab, maybe like the UN portrayal in this film. I don't know. Yeah, I, I took it more as simply... Simply as a, as a move from the film side to, to humanize the, the, the soldiers on, on both sides. In, in, yeah. in this case, they, they do show that, that basically that the war 
that and the conflict that happened it didn't really look into your sexual orientation yeah no and you mm. could be still a member of an underclass like for example the gay community and still be tied into this conflict because war in the end it doesn't see you as as, as a person mm-hmm. yeah the war doesn't take into consideration whether or not are, are you rich are you poor are you gay are you straight it's just kind of a meat grinder that pulls uh, pulls everybody through it yeah duty has no sweethearts or sexuality yeah That's a good point. And it's also, it's like a little bit of a humor in there, but you're not laughing because it's homosexual pornography. It's just, it's a bit jarring, comes out of nowhere. And it's just like a little reset before you get right back into the tension. Now Chicky grabs the gun and he's put to the position of waving the white, whatever the dress is, half naked. And that attracts the attention of both sides. And uh, they argue about who started the war in this mm-hmm. beautiful be- two shot yeah, which is a scene that uh, particularly Daniel has liked mm-hmm. absolutely and I I can see very well clearly why because it, once again at least to me No Man's Land is a film that talks a lot about how how conflicts and wars are a failure of a, of a communication Mm-hmm. War is a result of a com- of the fact that two sides could no longer talk to each other, and the communication got broken, or or it got it got so confused and conflicted that the only outlet that the sides anymore finds out of the situation is is through aggression and violence. Mm-hmm. I kind of saw this in in how how Nino constantly wants to shake everybody's hand and. <laughs> Everyone else just outright refuses to shake his hand. If the leaders of both sides would have just, you know, kept on shaking hands and staying around the negotiation tables, maybe the conflict could have been been prevented in that case. Now Tsera wakes up. Now Nino takes control of the gun for a moment, very short moment indeed. And the joke with the who started the war turns around as he's pointed the mm-hmm. gun. Nino versus Tsera. Tsera pulls Nino on top of him and situation yeah. changes once again. Both the Bosnian Serb and the Bosniak now have guns and they seem to call it a tie and stop pointing it <laughs> at each other. This is, the, this is the first moment where they kind of see eye to eye that, well, hey, maybe we shouldn't kill each other. Yeah, it's a bit of a mutually assured destruction, right? If both sides have nuclear weapons, then no <laughs> side can use them. Oh, very good point. Now, <laughs> the two guys, Chiki and Nino, are waving this white fabric once again, and uh, mm-hmm. uh, both sides are once again taking note, and they are like, what the hell is going on here? And the situation is so confusing that one of the sides call UN Pro 4 or UN to the scene, which is kind of interesting because this was not, as I understand it, the role of the UN in the Bosnian War at all. It was just to prevent the uh, destruction of any medical equipment or mm-hmm. medical areas, medical tents or hospitals. But now... Well, yeah. it, it, it was in the sense that, that on top of providing humanitarian uh, aid, UN was also in, in the Bosnian Wars to uh, to observe and uphold the, the ceasefire treaties that mm. were 
occasionally drawn and made during the conflict. And that's kind of what the UN is trying to do in this situation also. That there is a temporary ceasefire going on on both sides, uh, sides of the no man's land and UN mostly is interested in observing and keeping that ceasefire going on. Tzera takes a smoke. Nino insists uh, on introducing himself once again, and he is taken as uh, some kind of a buffoon or crazy person. Mm-hmm. UN before UN approaches, they are at some kind of a checkpoint on the Serb side. This is the scene where the soldier famously answers to the French UN uh, troops, <laughs> troopsman, yes, 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 <laughs> to every question. Yeah, and then it kind of reiterates that to his boss that yeah, 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 it's just some French guy, so let's, let's keep on saying yes. <laughs> Which again is the irony of the UN and the situation. They're meant to broker a peace treaty or a ceasefire, rather. Yet they can't speak the language of either side, which is kind of what Henrik already alluded to, a breakdown in communication and the bureaucracy of it all, right? I I wrote down Kafka-esque almost. It actually makes no sense for the people to help communicate between the sides to not speak either language. Chiki and Nino then find out that they have a common friend, a girl called uh, Sonia Tsengic, and that's how they find some kind of a common ground. It didn't take too long. The UN later has a call saying that since they don't know anything about these individuals at no man's land, they shouldn't proceed, especially since this is not their role as the UN. Mm-hmm. Yeah, during during, yeah. during the conflict, UN was almost impotent mm-hmm. in, in act, actually doing anything concrete to actually try to solve the conflict going on and put an end and to that's it. And that's kind of why, why I find it peculiar that the blame game towards UN was happening in, in this war since because they had certain rules that they had to abide for and they had their mission. They couldn't get involved too much. I think the UN has taken a lot of blame for, for example, you, for you example, and, not you. stopping the Srebrenica massacre. I don't know how possible it was and how aware they were of that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, UN has taken a lot of blame for for what happened and for its its ineptitude to actually really solve the conflict in in any way. UN also has been extremely self-critical on on the later years on on how it dealt with the Bosnian war. Kofi Annan himself who is the sec- uh, secretary general of the of U- of the UN has made a public statement that a Bosnian war was kind of a miscalculation on UN's part mm-hmm. part that UN tried to take part and tried to help the conflict and tried to solve the conflict but at the same time UN didn't realize that the Bosnian war didn't follow the philosophy of UN mm-hmm. and it didn't follow the ideology and mandate of UN like U- UN went there with uh, with a completely wrong mindset mindset and because of this the the UN peacekeepers on the ground level were almost constantly found themselves almost constantly in a situation where they where they had their hands start behind their back mm-hmm. because the bureaucracy and and Essentially, even UN's role uh, prevented them from taking an actual part in in any way 
in in how how the conflict played out. This is kind of the the same same situation that you have with other multinational big institutions like for example the Red Cross who much like UN also is often allowed to provide humanitarian air aid in 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 the war zone and who are allowed to be observers on human rights questions and and in in ceasefire treaties but who also never actually can do anything real anything physical to to affect the conflict anyway red cross also red cross can have its have its refugee camps it can have its its medical facilities but it can't have an army providing security for those camps and medical facilities it it can't put a military force into anything that happened happens in in any particular conflict meaning that if, if there is a red cross refugee camp and there's a there's a war going on there are warlords on both sides of the conflict essentially what red cross has in in its defense and its for its protection is just a it's just the ideal of a good will that neither warlord will attack an Red Cross refugee camp. There's no any any real safety measures. There they, there are no armed guards and guns in those camps. Right. <clears throat> and that's kind of a, what what was UN's situation in Bosnian War. Also, I also do feel that UN has has gained unnecessary amount of flack on on grounds of how impotent UN was and how UN didn't do anything drastic to solve the conflict in any way. But at the same time, I can understand why UN is so blamed for for its mishandling of the Bosnian war. Well, I have a comment, actually, just because you were talking about we don't know who they are. Are they civilians or are they are they soldiers? And that's a good like you see that come up throughout the whole movie as a theme. Uh, they have to strip of their uniform when they go out to wave their white flag because if they identify as either soldier, they're going to be shot. But mm. once they strip off their uniform, neither side can actually tell if they're <laughs> Bosnian or if they're Serbian. True. Highlighting maybe that they're more, they have more in common than difference. And also just that, yeah, it's a meat grinder. You're just feeding soldiers in their meat grinder. You don't care who they are. You won't even shake their hand. It's not for no reason as the, I think the poster picture of the, of the whole film when they're fa- yeah. waving. Yeah. That's very simple. Yeah. Very good point. So the Smurfs arrive. A Smurf leader <laughs> orders them to pull, but Chiki escalates the situation and doesn't let Nino go. Instead shoots him in the leg. Uh, mm-hmm. Now the reporter comes to the scene. The reporter has been listening on the UN frequency and questions why the UN is unable to help the guys. But she's being really annoying. <laughs> a kind of a typical, kind of a cliche image of a reporter, I would say. Absolutely. The reporter talks with the UN. There's some video material inser- inserted here regarding. I believe real news. This claims that the ethnic cleansing, or as it said, ethnical cleansing became uh, as something of a term after this war. The reporter is angry that she doesn't get to go to the scene yet. She has to wait for the mine expert. Too bad. Mm-hmm. Apparently, she would just rather blow herself to pieces. <laughs> well, uh, on top of that, the media and the reporter character here kind of shows the outsider 
outraged towards the handling of the situation during the Bosnian mm-hmm. war. The mm-hmm. reporter very much is is in the same way as as for example, well, well, you and me when we sign our names into into any Abbas internet boycott or Greenpeace boycott, please sign sign your name here lists. And there, there is through the, through the the media showing up. There is a, there is the theme and the sense of of an outsider force trying to use political measures and and PR t- tactics to pressure the organizational heads. Be, be that e- either the military leadership on on either sides of the conflict or or then the the higher ups of the UN to act somehow and some way in order to end the conflict. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure how legitimately the, uh, the reporter cares about the war ending. They're trying to generate a report more than anything. It's about getting the mm. shot and then all the money and profit that comes to the news station for that. And for Jane, her priority might be getting better gigs in the future, getting to cover bigger topics and assignments. So everybody's kind of self-serving in this. I mean, there's maybe like a bit of sympathy there, but at the end of the day, that's the final shot. You have Sarah by himself because no one actually cares about what happens. Yeah, because the media outlets actually pull out after the head of the UN makes the statement that we are giving you a press conference on a different location and the situation has now been dealt with. That was pretty... Pretty harsh scene to to actually have on this this film, and I would say that's mm-hmm. actually the most condemning scene for for the media characters that the film has, and maybe even also for the UN. Yeah, it's quite condemn condemning on of or darning for UN, isn't it? Oh, absolutely, absolutely. So now there's the knife fight and the Smurfs return at this moment. Interesting, this way of saying somebody who is wearing something consisting of blue, white, the Smurfs. In Finland, it's uh, it's given for those ticket inspectors in uh, when you go to Metro ah. or the, the bar, yeah, yeah. bus. Yeah, they wear the yeah. Uh, blue. Yeah, also your tracksuit in, in Finnish or uh, Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Often called the Smurfs. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Smurfs, like that whole, I guess, show is way more popular in Europe than in North America. I think that whole scene would not make much sense to a North American audience because Smurf here is not a big phenomena. Well, I think it was really to the point here because they are Frenchies driving the the UN armored vehicle. (laughs) Yeah, it's just another little bit of uh, humor in there. <laughs> True. So the German mine expert arrives, and yes, indeed, nobody still speaks French. He keeps asking whether somebody speaks French, but <laughs> at, it's kind of a, 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 I don't know, like to generalize, but I, I guess I'm doing it anyway. That's kind of French people and Spanish people, for example, they usually expect that many people speak their language, but it's not always mm-hmm. the case. A reporter gets to the trench finally. There's something wrong with this reporter. She's going absolutely bonkers here, like, say, <laughs> fucking Balkanian, what the fuck are you doing? And she has already condemned the French as to fucking French. What the hell is her problem? <laughs> yeah, right? Well, essentially the fact that the French and the UN, they they are constantly kind of trying to lowball her and and the media outlet they, they they are promising her to the coverage and then they are pulling that promise 
they want to have a, co a cooperation, but only in the sense that that she can help them. And there, there is no that that kind of a vice versa. You helped us, we help help you situation except on those moments when when the situation is so bad that Yuan has no choice but to polish and she really can can black well essentially blackmail the UN mm -hmm. officials to actually give her something. When she finally gets her chance to interview someone, she completely blows it. She doesn't have seemingly anything prepared. It's just like the lamest question in the world. How do you feel? Oh. Seriously? Yeah. And then well, that's true. Uh, makes the wrong move. I, I can understand this could go in either direction. This Was it you who put the mind underneath the other soldier? Yeah. I think that's a fair question, but gets the finger instead. They yeah. finally yeah. agree to get out from the trenches and Chiki refuses the bandages. TV station wants the story of the mine guy, so she tries to get that. Now the mine expert from the Germany says the mine, the mine cannot be removed. I was kind of curious, maybe it could have been removed if you would kind of, if they could try to remove the sand around it. But well, yeah. we just have to trust the expert, I guess. Or maybe the yeah. bomb expert or mine expert didn't want to risk his life in, life in this situation. It, yeah, yeah, it's possible. It, it kinda, yeah, kind of appears like that. And Because, uh, well, once again, I, I'm not mine expert myself, but what the little understanding I have about these bouncing mines, it's the same notion that also Siki makes in, in the film, that what if you would try to put weight on top of the mind? Kind of a, have some kind of weight that you can you can slip yeah. under Sarah's back yeah. and on, on top of the mind so that the mind would still be kept pressed down. Yeah. And that would keep it from exploding. And the mind expert just mm. outright refuses that notion and says that that's not doable. And I... Kind of can't understand why not. Uh, Sarah earlier he had a quote where he says, I don't even know where we are. What a stupid place to die. And maybe that's the same thing the mine expert is thinking. I don't want to die in some stupid field yeah. in the Balkans. Yeah. Because the mine expert also, and this is something that, that is good to note, he's not one of the locals. He's some guy from Germany. Yeah. Which means that he has why perhaps he has a family like wife and sure, kid yeah. back in, back in Germany. So why now take this extremely high level of risk to to save some Bosnian in in yeah. in some ass end of of a Bosnian country? Yeah. Why 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 risk it all? Absolutely. Instead, the mine expert hands Zera some picture of his so he can hang on to that while they are both aware of the situation that this is not going to get any further. And you and yeah. Colonel arrives at the scene. At the same time, Chiki grabs a gun from one body around the vicinity and the journalists will crucify them, they say, if they can't defuse the mine. Mine man is ordered back to the trench just for appearances mm -hmm. during which they make up this whole case that, that well they put some guy on yeah. the on the stretchers and they came to the helicopter to make it look like so that they took the guy out and now the yeah. reporter makes the mistake of her life from her perspective that she doesn't see the point to return to the trenches to take any yeah. photography or whatnot i have a quick comment about the so it's kind of one of the big scenes is obviously cheeky killing nino and then cheeky himself being shot by the Unprefer. Because what happened just before he decided to do this, he's walking by 
all the bodies and they're all being covered up. And you can just see the shoes and you have the ones with the military boots and you have the ones with the sneakers. And you can see with, with Cheeky and Sarah, they're dressed mostly like civilians. Cheeky has kind of like an iconic outfit. He has the Rolling Stone t-shirt and the Converse on. He doesn't look like a soldier and that kind of makes sense in the context of the war. And as he's walking by, he can see the juxtaposition, you know, the National Army, very well equipped, and he can see the sneakers. And maybe he even identifies whose sneakers those were. He lost a lot of people in his troop just that morning. And that seemed to be like the final straw. Again, that identity, that very strong visceral identity. And in this case, it's not even based on a flag. It's just based on the civilian clothing versus the the army uniform of the enemy in this case. Yeah. Uh, Chiki has had has kind of had it at this point and blames Nino for using his own, own knife on him. Yeah. Hence, yeah. shoots Nino and Chiki gets shot as a response. And some proper reality TV there, right there for you. Yeah. Cherai's still in the trenches, obviously, and there's the one of the last lines of the film, quote, it wouldn't make any difference, you know, it wouldn't change anything. I'm not sure what this uh, colonel, I, I believe, is referring to. Did you guys kind of catch that, the meaning of this? Yeah. Because there's nothing to do anyway. <laughs> there's nothing to do anyways. I think, yeah, this is definitely more of a comment on their overall role in the situation. Saving one soldier yeah. isn't going to make a difference in terms of our mission here. That's true, yeah. But it's meant to make the viewer uncomfortable because we're, we're humans and we care about humans. We, we don't mm. think in terms of big missions and geopolitical ramifications. We we think if you can save a person, you should probably save a person or try harder and not just care about the appearances and posturing and political authority. And it leaves you with, yeah, because the whole movie is really is Cheeky and Nino up until this point. And now it's the French UN soldier, more or less, who again is just as impotent, has already violated orders to try and do something and he can't do anything. And all of them leave, including the reporters. And we have the final shot of Zera, white shot of him above. And that's lights out. It's uh, nighttime. And it uh, would have been interesting to know what was his final decision. But of course, it's not necessarily to see it. But you can think about it. Think about the aftermath of this Ooh. moment yeah. in some nice summer night. Well, yeah, there necessarily there even is no call for a final decision from Sarah's part because something that actually can be likely to happen after the film ends and after the night starts is that either side will launch an an artillery strike yes to that to the trench and well that that strike would immediately kill Sarah even if if he himself would not make any decision on, in, in this situation. Yeah, wasn't it pointed out during the film that uh, the UN planned it so that they were feeding false information for both sides, yeah. that they would do the attack after the yeah. yeah. next, yeah. next and, day? And, and this this way, and destroyed the evidence that UN didn't yeah. save that one soldier and just left him there to die. Yeah. Absolutely. That that's a good point, and and Sarah doesn't know this. So if he decides to wait and see if help comes back, he dies from that without having the option to choose whether or not to do it himself. I guess. But the final shot, and again, it's very deliberate, right? It, mm. it would probably be a little tasteless to show that last scene. Yeah. But it ends with the sunset, a, a proverbial sunset and a literal sunset 
what was otherwise a beautiful day. Uh, people in Yugoslavia talk a lot about how their country is so beautiful. How could we have destroyed such a beautiful place? And the the land, the nature, and the landscape in Yugoslavia is really breathtaking. Hmm. And I think that really tr- is trying to highlight that for the people in the Balkans. Like, just look at what could have been a beautiful day in our beautiful country that instead has this tragedy of just its people killing each other. There's one last thing I wanted to chat about because this was Roger Ebert's review on this movie. I quite like, actually. He liked the movie as well. He gave it three and a half out of four stars, Hmm. which, I mean, Roger Ebert's always one of the people I looked up to in terms of film critique. But he talked about that scene, the point of view shots where where they're looking up at the sky. So there's the scene of Nino after uh, Cheeky first is standing over him with the gun. Their first encounter... Nino closes his eyes. He thinks he's about to get shot and Chiki doesn't shoot him. And then you have the point of view shot after Nino opens his eyes of him looking up at the sky. And that's the same shot that you get from Sarah's position after he's on the mine for a while. And I don't know if you guys have heard of the overview effect, but this is the effect people get when they're up in the International Space Station and they're just zooming above the Earth and they're looking down at the planet from this incredibly zoomed out perspective and all of a sudden all the differences between different groups of people seem meaningless yeah like we're on this one planet why can't we just get along and i kind of liken this sky point of view shot to a reverse overview effect where they're both looking up and for nino it's after he finds out he wasn't killed he's appreciating being alive and appreciating the beautiful day and just I don't, something bigger than what they are. And maybe their differences don't matter. And same thing for Tsera. Once he knows he's been basically condemned to death, he's looking up at that same sky. You have the one Bosniak, the one Serbian. They're both looking up at the same sky. And in Sarah's case, it's more, I, I missed this. I'm going to miss this. This is what mattered. Or maybe I hope I can appreciate this again. If I get out of here, I'm going to not take this for granted anymore. And I mentioned... That, that crawling scene towards the trenches, the way it's framed with the ground taking up half the screen and then cut so tightly against the top of the soldiers as they're crawling towards the no man's land, you don't see the sky. So when they're being treated like cannon fodder, they, they're completely made oblivious to what's above them and what they have in common. And it's only when their lives are threatened do they regret really the situation they're in. So I think that's really one of the more poignant points in addition to the themes of identity and and how that's symbolized in the movie with their uniforms. Yeah, like uh, that's really interesting, like more of a truncated frame of reference, more tighter shots, unless you're worried about your life and then it kind of world opens up to you in a sense. Then Then it opens up, exactly. And that's, yeah, you don't really have too many shots throughout the film of the trench from either sides. You either see the people on either side of the on the front lines but you don't get their perspective on the trench much. You don't even see how far the trench is from either side mm. throughout the film. It, it could be anywhere, really. It's no man's land. And they really try and isolate that spot where they don't belong to either side anymore almost. They've stripped off their uniforms. They wave their white flags. But they can't let go of that identity. They keep fighting with each other. Uh, and even though there is a moment where they both have one degree of separation, one person dated the person the other one went to school with, they've they've been in the same city then, right? Yeah. And then they just, it was too much baggage. There's too much trauma there to undo in that moment. Let's do the quickies. Yeah, let's do the quickies. Yeah. So how quick do I have to be with the quickies? <laughs> you decide. Usually we okay. just joke about it because they tend to be the slowest. Or because <laughs> okay, there you go. Yeah. And favorite performance. Daniel, do you want to go first or should I go? Yeah. 
I'm going to go with Bronco Duric as Cheeky. Yeah, same. Cheeky would be the, my answer. Bronco Duric. Basically, I guess, because he had the most screen time, so he had a lot of range. Also that. Yeah, he that. had a lot to work with. Absolutely. Uh, although that's no slight on on Sarah or or on Nino. They they did a fantastic job as well. They did. It's I think it's uh, all around great acting. So I, yeah. this is just something that I chose. Mm-hmm. Well, the film really is is stock full of full of great performances. A lot of nuance and very very kind of a held back performances. But it, once again, if if you have to pick one, I would go with Branko Turek. So it's uh, three chickies. Essentially, it's it's three chickies. Favorite shot. I have a bit of a a weird shot, but there's a scene where Nino's crawling towards the trench with his older compatriot. And something about the way that shot is framed, where the foreground comes up like 50% away. They're like deliberately violating the rule of thirds. And as a result, mm. it's a very claustrophobic shot where they're just framed. Like the body's just right at the top of the frame, cutting out the sky entirely. And I think that's a nice little juxtaposition with the point of view shot where Nino or Tzera are on their back and they're looking up at the sky. Kind of when they're in the middle of the war, they're being told what to do, following orders. They can't see the sky at all. They're just shoved down into the dirt. But then when they're facing death, that's when they finally kind of realize what matters in the world. So that's my favorite shot. Okay, nice, very technical answer. Uh, favorite shot for me, I was kind of uh, between two shots. For some reason, I really kind of liked the crawling shots for no particular reason. Reason yeah. when the Serbs were approaching the trenches. But yeah. I think I would go with the final shot when we have this kind of a full yeah. shot, wide shot of of Zera there left to his devices. Yeah, that's that's a hard one, right? Because the sun's setting and it's just like a very metaphorical setting of the sun. And you yeah. just hear the nature around him. It should be a beautiful day, but instead it's his last day. Well, at least they didn't end the film like at the point of uh, all the fighting that would have happened probably the next day and they would have yeah. blown the guy to pieces or no yeah that yeah. Would, that would have been that would have Stop. lacked a little bit of nuance <laughs> would yeah. be that that final shot all right favorite scene yeah i loved it and i love this one since i was in grade 11 but the first time they're arguing about who started the war they're inside the the hut and they have the <laughs> uh cheeky has the gun and they're arguing back and forth no you started the war no you started the war that's my favorite scene yeah that's a great one for my part, I chose this when the UN Pro 4 approaches and comes to help, but then gets turned back because Chiki goes crazy. And oh, yeah. Shoots the poor one, bastard too. in the leg. Yeah. yeah. That's a good one. Also, the like honestly, all the UN scenes, because it's some of the only humor in the movie, but the first time they come to the Serbian line and the person just keeps saying yes. like that's, <laughs> yeah. that, And that sums up something for me, too, because how useless is the UN there if they don't even speak the language of the people fighting? Don't you need someone there that can speak maybe Bosnian or Serbian? Right. I felt that it was some kind of a commentary definitely towards the UN. And I'm not sure how currently the UN took this film. Yeah, uh, I'm sure they didn't take it well. Yeah. Right. You you have these Frenchies and uh, in a, I guess, a cliche French way, they keep asking, do you speak French? Yeah. Parlez français? (laughs) Yeah. No, they still do not speak French. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, very good. Favorite scene? 
Uh, would be the two guys when when Nino and Siggy now both are together outside of the trench and they are they are mm-hmm. waving their white flags. Also, also the scene that's been taken for the poster of this film, and I can very highly understand why that is. Okay, we got f- three distinct favorite scenes. Favorite line or lines? Favorite line. Um, it got used quite a few, so I like how uh, because I have a gun and you don't. It, it fits in with that whole who started the war. That narrative is very common in this in this movie. Yeah. Uh, for me, I guess it could go to neutrality does not exist in the face of murder. Doing nothing yeah. to stop it is, in fact, choosing. It is not being neutral. No, absolutely. I, I like that one too. I think I don't reason I didn't choose it is I don't I didn't want to choose a quote by the UN. I just <laughs> <laughs> I although that character I did like the character. He's in the same situation as everybody else. He's just a like a foot soldier, for lack of a better word. Right. Uh well this most definitely is, is my pick for it. It's it's a conversation between Siki and Nino where where they remark that who cares who started it, we are all in the same shit now. Oh yeah. I felt that kind of really really honestly depicted the the conflict and basically everyday soldiers position in the Bosnian yeah. war. It doesn't matter who started yeah. the war. It doesn't even matter why the war started specifically because those individual people are still in the harm's way because the conflict oh, yeah. is going on. Yeah. Favorite kill. <laughs> yeah, right? <laughs> way to put me on the spot. Favorite kill in this movie of, of conflict between ethnicity. Um, yeah. What, if I had what to I... pick a, like a literal kill... Probably like the least redeemable, least likable character is the person that sets the mine, right? So him getting killed is maybe a bit satisfying in that regard. Otherwise, there's no real favorite kill here. Although, if you want to look more at like the most poignant, uh, knowing that that Sarah's gonna die off screen and like everything that's in, like it's a very heavy thing. But I wouldn't call it my favorite kill. Yeah, I think I'm just going to be cheap and choose the one that you just did. <laughs> that that yeah. that that kill is maybe the least controversial as favorite kill. Yeah, yeah. All right, nice. Um. Well, this is once again kind of a kind of a mean pick from my end, but <laughs> it goes to Sarah, who most definitely is going to die after the cameras stop rolling, yeah. one way or the another. Either it's the mine, or then it's the artillery bombardment, or then he just starves to death. But but Sarah is a goner, and I I think that when it comes to the kills in this film, Sarah's death is the one that speaks most about exactly how hopeless war can be, and how hopeless this type of situation can be. What drew you out? I wouldn't say I ever fully dropped out. Not even that close, but I found that the portrayal of the UN is probably just like a bit over the top. I get that they were doing like a nice satirical take. I appreciated it. But with the commander, that British, it was just, it was too much of a caricature, I think. You could have had the same argument, but a little bit more nuance. So sometimes when it goes a little too over the top, it's kind of like, uh, yeah. I don't know if he would actually say that. And he doesn't need to say that to still be evil. 
Yeah, that's right. But I guess uh, well, the film is also short, so it just goes straight to the point. Yeah. Nothing in particular dropped me out. Maybe there were some short scenes in the trenches after the first bullets had been flying that could have been cut out that didn't necessarily contribute that much, oh, yeah. but... Yeah, no, I agree. What drew you out? Uh, nothing really, which is kind of a surprising because seeing how how this is a war movie where there is not that much war in it, I yeah. was kind of expecting that, that the lack of war would would eventually drop me out of the film, but that never happened. Mm -hmm. And I, I think that that's something that really speaks for the actors and the filmmaker in this case. Yeah. What drew you in? I would say the tension between Nino and Chiki is the driving force. Who has the gun at the time? Kind of that going back and forth. And then throughout the film, you can see they slowly warm up to each other. There's that moment where they both realize they know one person in common. But then very quickly after that, it just obviously ends the way it ends. So the, the rise and fall, the tension, will they become friends? Won't they become friends? Will they understand each other? Won't they understand each other? I think that drew me in more than anything. Yeah, good point. For me, I think the film kicks in gear immediately when the in the morning they realize that they are too close to the Serbian lines. And I think yeah. that that would be definitely something that drew me in. Yeah, I think that's also probably candidate for favorite shot, just that opening. Because again, what a beautiful scene in any other day, you know, the sun's rising, the fog's melting, but instead it's just filled with this horror of, oh my God. <laughs> Indeed, like anytime I watch any war films, and I see that it's a beautiful day. It's kind of a weird contrast psychologically. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and that's very like deliberate here. It's it's filmed on one day. They could have picked any one day with the weather, and no one would complain that it was unrealistic. Yeah. They deliberately picked like the most beautiful day, the yeah. most beautiful day, not just a nice day, like a gorgeous day. Um. Well, there are there are two things that really work for me in in a longer kind of a, in a in a longer sense it, it was the dialogue and and the discussion points between Nino and Siki yeah. but if if i'm to give you um, one instance like one scene in the film where that really that f for the first time put me in with the film that would be the opening serp attack yeah it's it, it is like there is a shock element to that scene because there is this because it's being preceded by the nighttime scene where nothing happens and then the right almost right from the beginning the very next scene is this open and loud violent moment where people mm -hmm. get people get shot and and there 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 is the tank shooting artillery fire against the the running escaping soldiers and there is explosions and bodies are flying or flying through the screen so it's it's there there is that shock element and there is also that kind of a almost dread-filled action moment also in that scene as you are mm -hmm. looking at the individual soldiers as they are trying to run away from the gunfire and they just get picked off one by one. And also what I found kind of interesting is the amount of different viewpoints throughout this film. You have one of the Bosnian and Serbian views, of course. Oh, yeah. You have the UN and, and then you have the reporter who is questioning the UN. Mm -hmm. uh, it's a kind of a war of viewpoints. And that's something that I really did like with No Man's yeah. Hand. 
Like there, there is there, there is the kind of a inevitable comparison between No Man's Land and Pretty Village, Pretty Flame, which both both are films about the same conflict from the different sides of the yeah. conflict, and I I really do like both movies. Um, uh, Pretty Village, Pretty Flame was one hell of a war film in in its brutality and and the way how how conflict was depicted in 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 that film and No Man's Land I felt was an exceptional movie in a way how it showed you all these different sides and different realities that played out throughout the Bosnian war like you, mm. you have the different sides. You have the UN, and you have the outsider perspective through the through the lens of the media. I really do feel that it's it's important that we do have films that tackle war as as a complex set of systems and institutions mm. that play off from each other, and not simply the typical World War War Two narrative where you have the have the heroic. Allies versus yeah. the evil na- Nazis, and and the whole story is just about attaining and keeping one hill or one bridge or something like that. Scissors of sacrilege. What would you change in the film, or how would you improve the film? How would I improve the film? I, I'm not a filmmaker. I don't. <laughs> I can I can maybe critique better than I can improve. Uh, again, maybe the portrayal of the UN. But you're right, it would make it a longer film if you still want to make the same points, but not take a shortcut to get there. But something in that regard with the international commentary and the bureaucracy of it, yeah, just a little less caricature-ish. Probably the only thing I can offer. I felt that it was running a little bit too long that you could have, as I already kind of said, that you could maybe tighten it up a bit in the trenches. But mm-hmm. once again, to get into details, I would have to open the film and start to spend a lot of time on that. So, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I kind of wouldn't change this film at all. Mm-hmm. Like, I, I can see that someone might criticize the movie for the fact that there really is not that much war in, in this war film. But I, I would counter that notion with the assessment that. This film kind of this this doesn't need that depiction of war itself, since the film itself is so much more intimate and so much about what actually happens behind the scenes of an individual battle. So I I really would keep my scissors to myself. Do you have three adjectives to describe the film? I do. So tense, bleak, and acerbic. So kind of this sharp wit about it. Yeah. For me, it would be slow, summary, and serious. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But but then again, yeah. It's kind of the pretty village case where you have uh, not only the, the serious cases, but you still have a sprinkled humor yeah. a bit here and there. Yeah. Absolutely. And it really, it's necessary, I think, to just kind of, it's part of the pacing of it. You need those brief moments just to kind of, recollect yourself a bit yeah uh from my end it would be honest because it it showcases you uh or at least it tries to showcase to you as many of the different sides that that took part in the conflict as as humanly possible and i felt that this film really wasn't taking sides 
I, I, when I started to, to watch No Man's Land, I was expecting that this will be from the Bosnian perspective. And you will most definitely notice that this is from Bosnian perspective. You are given the evil serfs who drink drink children's blood and, and <laughs> bathe in the entrails of, of civilian victims. But the film actually holds back. I, I would say pretty remarkable. Maybe something to point that we might remember from Pretty Village that that although it was uh, it also had a lot of humor in the film and in that way it portrayed the characters as war veterans in a way that nobody was outright showing their fear in the film and that might be something to criticize or it could be just seen as you pointed out in the episode that these are just characters who have seen so much that it doesn't matter to them whether they will live or die or they are better yeah. better at hiding their fear through the act of humor or nonchalant expression and i find that in uh, no man's land as a contrast we have bosnian serbs who show the fear maybe mostly nino at points just, just yeah the nino very much is about fear and very much about not wanting to die even in the end even sarah is who is the one character who most definitely is going to die even even he is more ready to die and more accepting of his death than what nino is. well did you look at your watch when you were watching this film I did, but it's my third time watching it, and I was taking notes, which isn't the most enjoyable way to watch a movie. So it's yeah. a qualified yes. I don't think I looked at my watch the previous time I watched the movie. Did you look at your watch during this film? I didn't. Not not once. Yeah, for me, it was a little bit of a slower experience, and I felt that I have seen this film in certain forms before, as I mentioned, so... Uh, uh, it wasn't as engaging experience to me as I was perhaps expecting. And to me, on the other hand, this kind of was a standalone remarkable exception when it came to war war films that I've seen. Once again, I, I haven't seen every war film that exists. And because of that, there, there of course, maybe variation on what you have gotten used to and what I have gotten used to. What I've gotten used to is is more the action heavy we are we are showing you the conflict there are people shooting at at each other type of conflict and war driven war films so on on that remark to me no man's land was an exception because it was it paid more closer eye to the politics of of the war and kind of a what goes on behind the curtain and that's something that i haven't seen that often and i i did feel that to me, No Man's Land was something that show, showed me something that I haven't seen before. When, as they're waving the white flags, so to say, you cannot identify them, whether they're soldiers. Had they known that they are soldiers, they I don't know if, if somebody would take enough interest to try to rescue these guys without knowing enough about the situation. But now that they are half naked, you could, you could theoretically pull an idea that these guys are even civilians who just yeah. somehow ended uh, in the middle of the playground and therefore need to be rescued ASAP. Yeah, that could also be, because during the conflict, unfortunately, civilians also 
got caught in in the crossfire and in the middle grounds of the conflict, the the quote unquote the no man's lands that existed in in Bosnia during the conflict. All right, would you recommend no man's land? Absolutely, I would. Same here. I think during the episode, I have already stated pretty much why yeah. it's not maybe the strongest recommendation that I've had actually in this in this podcast. Because um, I felt maybe the film needed a little bit more kick somewhere. And yeah. maybe there could have been something more developed between the Bosnian Serb and uh, the Bosniak. Then it's kind of rude awakening how things are still not settled. The guy just shoots the, the Bosnian Serb yeah. and that's it. Yeah, you're right. It could have had a little bit more of a peak. A little bit more of... Yeah. Yeah, in that in the crux of it all, yeah, potentially could have been something more. It's hard to say what though. Yeah, in a way, I feel that it's a film that I have seen already before in different uh, incarnations. But having this Bosnian conflict to lay over it, it always makes it more interesting for me. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Henrik, would you recommend No Man's Land? I really would recommend no, no man's land i i do feel that there there is some type of rawness in no man's land that if, even though it doesn't show you that much like this, this is not a bombastic war film with which ton of action and casualties and blood and gore won't sweep over the screen but i do still feel that when it comes to to the message that the film wants to to deliver when it comes to basically how incapable of doing anything all the characters in the film are there is some rawness in that and i do feel that even today no man's land is pretty topical as a war movie because once again, it is a war movie that depicts the political real realms and and the political sides of the conflict. I would say that those are realms and sides that haven't been solved, not even today. Like even today, UN is. I would almost point my finger and say that UN is is as impotent at, as it was during the Bosnian war. Mm-hmm. So in, in that sense, I do see that, that No Man's Land is a film that talks about war even today. All right. So it would be three recommendations for this evening. Not the strongest recommendation from me in this podcast, but as we have stated, I did enjoy the film, although I didn't find it as perhaps deep and as enjoyable in the storytelling, which was non-linear in Pretty Village. It just seemed that the village had certain identity that was really special to me. And I I would... Well, these are still very different films, I'd say, even mood-wise. The, the amount of humor, the goal that is set out in the end, plot-wise. Would you like to make any statements would you rather recommend pretty village or no man's i was dreading that question to be raised <laughs> during this episode and i really can't actually pick between the two films like yeah. uh, like, like it's it's almost a situation if if you want to see a cruel and dirty and mean war piece where 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 inhuman cruelty and violence is be, is being 
projected to the audiences and, and shown to you. In, in that case, I would most definitely recommend Pretty Village, Pretty Flame over No Man's, no Man's Land. And then again, if, if you want a film that tries more precisely to study how a conflict play out, plays out, like what, what are the questions that every side within the conflict has to answer and how futile the conflict in the end is. Because in 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 the end no one can do anything. Not really. It's it's all just smoke and mirrors and, and magic tricks. In that case I would actually recommend No Man's Land over Pretty Village Pretty Flame. I, I do think that you do well to check check out both of these films, but you also do well to preserve seeing either film to a day when you have chosen that well today I wanna watch a film that tackles war from this perspective. Ah, there you go. I surmise it's the moment for the last question for the quickies, so you really know you're watching No Man's Land when... You want for all war to end. That's a really good one. <laughs> I'm trying to think about something there, right? There's not much you can put in there. Yeah, I was a bit struggling with this, but then I came up with You really know you're watching No Man's Land when the titles say No Man's Land, unless... <laughs> <laughs> Unless it's one of those dozen other movies called No Man's Land, which you I think find. there are a few other movies called No Man's Land. <laughs> In which case, you'd still be watching No Man's Land. Yeah, just a different one. Yeah. Have you used that joke before? Is this your first time using that one? That's my first time using it. <laughs> okay, there you go. But you can't use it again now. You, right. You blew it. That's uh, off the cards. Yeah. <laughs> All right. You really know you're watching No Man's Land when. When you are reading your average Smurfs comic and you are thinking, why is the UN messing with the black clothed wizard motherfucker? <laughs> isn't that boat bastard some kind of a sorcerer or <laughs> Oh well, uh, at least he did have the French gourmet cuisine uh, because his main motivation to go after the Smurfs from, from one story to the next is simply because he wants to cook and eat. <laughs> Hey, Daniel, do you have any books or documentaries or articles that you would recommend to our listeners related to the Bosnian War or maybe the film? Okay, so related to the Bosnian War, there is actually a really great documentary. And again, I, I generally prefer the ones that are looking at how it was like for the civilians, like the people living during the war. So mm -hmm. there's this movie, a documentary called Cry for Me Sarajevo. It's about... Bruce Dickerson, he was the front man for Iron Maiden, I believe. And oh. during the middle of the siege in Sarajevo, this one guy in the UN, this is how he decided to help. He wanted to have a concert in the middle of Sarajevo during the siege. And they reached out to a bunch of bands who all said no, but Bruce Dickerson was with a new group at this time. And he said yes. So they drove them in with a convoy and they played a, a concert in the middle of the war. And it interviews a lot of people that are there and it goes behind the scenes as to how it worked. And then they bring Bruce Dickerson and the band back to Sarajevo 20 years later. And they actually meet some of the people that were in the audience that night. So oh. it was a it was a very good documentary. That one was awesome. And then there's another documentary. I haven't seen it though, but it's the same idea. They did a, a Miss Sarajevo beauty pageant also in the middle of the war. And oh, nice. there's a very famous photograph where they're, like the contestants were holding up like signs or something talking about the, the, the war or the genocides or things like that, trying to bring international attention 
to what was happening in Sarajevo. So it's a similar genre of documentary, but I haven't seen it. So I can't say I recommend or don't recommend it, but that's another one that gets talked about a lot. All right. Noted very much. Yeah. And then for movies, not much. Uh, there's also this Bosnian-American author that I read quite a bit of, Alexander Himon, and all his characters are like Bosnian-Americans who also left Yugoslavia just before the war, like he did. And in some cases, yeah, it looks at the Bosnian diaspora quite a bit. So for your listeners that also read. <laughs> awesome. <laughs> all right. So thank you very much, Daniel, for joining us. And, uh, and uh, if you have any links or any works that you are, or things that you're working on that you would like to mention to us, feel free to do so. No, yeah, thanks so much for having me. This was a blast. And although it's a bit difficult to arrange for the time, being on different continents, it's yes. a really cool experience, right, in the 21st century, to be able to chat with entirely new people and share that international experience. So a couple of links for all of y'all. Um, I blog at lifetypestuff.com, lifetypestuff.com. And I'll also be releasing podcast formats of some of the articles I've written on that blog. It's a collaboration with my friend Jack, who is in the audio industry. So we're just talking about life-type stuff, whether it be philosophy of science, philosophy of consciousness. We talk about some music critique as well, uh, lyrical analysis, and some personal blogs as well. You'll actually see a blog if you're interested about more of my Bosnian experience. It's called The Death of My Canadian Dream. It's one of the blogs I wrote discussing what it was like coming to Canada as a refugee and then slowly deconstructing the myth of what it is to be a Canadian. Okay, definitely got to check it out. That's pretty much it. And in case the UN is short on partial Smurf clothing, we can donate our lab coats to them. <laughs> if, if, if UN wants a conflict resolve specialist, please contact us on, on our Facebook page or go, go to the FlickLab webpage on www theflicklapper.com and just keep in mind before you do that that we will not take part in the actual conflict uh, on the field but we might just well, well speak for yourself like if 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 money is good enough well, you know just just wow. strap me up sailor i i, I could <laughs> i could take a take a webcam live show from the front lines and do what I don't want to know. I don't know. You know, you, you see that when, when once you reach the front line. <laughs> uh, stay tuned for that one. Well, we have... No, no, not so that I'm desperate for money, but... <laughs> you know, really, seriously, you and if you if you need need cheap cannon fodder, just, you know, drop me a <laughs> call. <laughs> I hope our listeners have now given gotten the picture that we have. Try to balance this somehow out. I suppose we have now haters on both sides. We have looked at this conflict from the both perspectives, so to say. There is the Bosnian side, more or less, and the Serbian yeah. side, quite strongly. Yeah, apologies to both sides. Yeah. You, you, you really didn't deserve this. <laughs> the flick lab treatment. <laughs> the flick lab treatment. In case... No harm done. <laughs> I'd be happy to visit <laughs> your countries at one point. In case you happen to live in some banana republic that is also going through a civil war at the moment, and possibly a film is being made about that, just, you know, give us a call. Yeah. Drop us a PM message on, in, on Facebook and we will, we will tackle your conflict also. 
Yeah, preferably remotely indeed. <laughs> <laughs> Just to be on the safe side. No, but um, I hope you've enjoyed it a little. And we definitely learned a lot about the whole conflict during making these episodes. And yeah, if you th- think that we are talking completely out of our asses here, please uh, try to terrorize our webpage and Facebook, Twitter, Instagram feeds and tell us how we can help you further. We probably can't. Most likely we can. And in the meantime and in the between timers, you can find us on the aforementioned socialistic medias. And oh, that's kind of it. You mentioned our webpage and well, that's... I guess I have to let this one go. Henrik, what is our next film? I don't know. Are we watching something from Poland? Uh, I swear, I mean, not to be kind of insulting towards anyone in any way. I hope not. But we have been going through a lot of Slavic territory recently. And I promise that this will be the last Slavic movie in a while. But yeah, we are going to watch... Corpus Christi from 2019 from Poland, which was the Oscar-nominated film in the last Oscars. Not to be disrespectful towards anyone, of course, but apparently we are once again pointing our finger at the Catholic Church. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> just like we did in this one. What the hell was the name? Oh, never mind. Uh, in the in the name of. In the name of. Nothing against the Catholic Church. But hey, I thought that this, since we're international podcast, this would be a prime target for us to tackle. Maybe we will even get a guest to that. We'll see. Maybe, maybe the Pope can can drop by in the podcast. Uh, yeah. Or, uh, <laughs> or the PM of Poland. I saw the PM of Poland appear in one famous Polish YouTuber's channel giving information about the COVID. So I don't know. Maybe Maybe give us a call. Yeah, we in the, in the meantime we promise that we will try to private message both the the Pope and the PM of Poland. <laughs> no, this was so much fun. This was this was great. I'm not sure if you ever have guests on multiple times, but if there's another movie yeah. out there and you you need someone on. I this is fun. It's been a long time since I have I know I annoy my friends with how I chat about movies, so this is good. <laughs> uh, this is something that I was about to ask, actually. If we ever get back to, let's say, a Bosnian war, yeah, it would be my pleasure to invite you back. Sounds great. I, w- I would love to be back. And otherwise, uh, keep in touch. Yeah, you have you, you have my account on Reddit. I plugged my blog. I'll I'll keep track of the of the podcast. Best of luck to both of you. Thank you. It's it's awesome to see. I mean, you're almost at a hundred episodes now. That's yeah. That's a that's a lot. <laughs> that's there's so much work that goes into this stuff, and now all the editing that's going to go into it too. So <sighs> it takes all of your life, almost like all of your free yeah. time. It's crazy. Absolutely, but you get to meet a lot of cool people. I'm sure. Definitely, this is another great way from from the from your seat, from your home. You can meet yeah. other cool people. Once again, don't forget to leave us a rating on iTunes or or actually it's called Apple Podcasts nowadays. So don't forget to leave us a rating there because that's kind of the mecca of podcasting. And of course, if you don't use Apple Podcasts, that's fine. Just go to any place where you listen to your podcasts and please give us a rating there because it because it really helps us out. Thanks for joining us and see you next week for Corpus Christi on the day of Corpus Christi. See you next week. Oh, until then.
uh, I will take this episode ending Mambo Jumbo out of the way. So. Okay. Selvä. Reaperi crashes. What? Niin, niin hyvä softa. Niin hyvä. <laughs> All right. And so we also have my co-host Henrik here. How are you, Henrik? And insert Henrik here. <laughs> <laughs> That the last few weeks have been an absolute nightmare. To be absolutely honest. To be absolutely honest. To be absolutely honest.